take your seats. Good evening. Uh, I appreciate uh, the invitation to come and be with you today. Um, I served with Jamie on the Health and Extension Committee of the Pre our Presbytery. Um, I always feel uneasy talking to people that uh, I don't know and they don't know anything about me, so I, I hope we get to know more about you, but I'd like to just share a little bit about myself. Um, I'm retired from the pastorate. I was, uh, I was in the pastorate for 45 years, most of the time in the PCA, but I have been in the ARP for the last eight years. And um, <clears throat> I specialized in church renewal. I took several churches that were very small and built them up into large churches uh, that, were, had, that had many problems. I started, I planted two churches and, um, and for a number of years I was a church consultant trying to help churches that had problems get those problems solved. I um, spent one year uh, recently down in Jacksonville with uh, the church there, the ARP church there as their interim, helping them to uh, work through some things and to get a really good pastor and, and they have one now and the church is three times larger than it was when I went there. And um, so, um, just giving you a little bit of background of my ministerial background. Um, also, I have eight children, uh, 19 grandchildren, and um, uh, most of my kids were homeschooled as they grew up. Uh, I have five of my children are missionaries, and um, uh, I have one that's in charge of all the missionaries in Eastern Europe for um, Campus Crusade. I have one that's in charge of the music ministry of Campus Crusade nationwide. And I have one that's in charge of a national, a national international ministry to coaches' wives. I have one that is a music director in a, in a church, and I have one that's um, just getting ready to go to uh, Turkey. So I have... Um, I'm proud of my children. They're great people, and um, I know as yours are as well. So let me pray for uh, illumination, and then we'll get started. Lord, we come today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've been clear to us about what you want. And Lord, it's not that you are not clear, it's, it's that we are stiff-necked and hard-headed and many times won't listen to what you say. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this church, help them to see their own potential and to trust and believe in the promise you made that they go in your authority and that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit should come upon them and that they will be your witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, help them to do great and mighty things for you in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very excited and optimistic about this church because I've done a little study of your town. You have 200,000 people here. You have Fort Bragg. Great opportunity. Your church has been growing, doing well, but it can do even better. And... Um, I'm very excited. I'm kind of like the lady who, uh, this older lady who walked up to a gentleman in, uh, at a party 
And she said, um, wow, you look like my third husband. And he was kind of taken aback. He said, well, how many husbands have you had? And she says, two. <laughs> so, so she was really optimistic about the, the relationship. And I'm really optimistic about this church. I really think you guys have a great opportunity here. And I'm whole, I, I just want to be a little part of that. And maybe if, tonight I can be a little part of that. Um, it would be exciting to me. I had a church at a, in a military town. Uh, one of my churches was in Pensacola, uh, next to NAS base. Uh, went there, we had 20 people. We started and uh, we grew to be several hundred. And um, in fact, at one point, um, I, I'm big on statistics. I look, I kind of look at statistics, and uh, you know, it's not, it's not really a, about church growth. It's more about church health, you know. But if you're healthy, you're going to see some statistical growth, right? And um, at one point in my church in Pensacola, we were having more people make professions of faith every year than all 28 of the other churches in the Presbyterian. And we were only having 35 a year, and around 35 a year. And that was, that was more than all the other churches in the Presbytery combined. The state of the church in America is not very good. 85% uh, of the churches in America are not growing. 3,000 churches closed their doors last year. Churches are being led astray. They're getting into the woke culture. They're, they're becoming liberal. There's all kinds of problems that's going on in the church in America. But if you are a faithful church, if you are a faithful church, you can expect great things to happen. Because you're going to be different than so many of these other churches. Our church in Pensacola, we had a, uh, uh, we were kind of a, depressed every July because um, so many people were transferred. We would lose a third of the church every July. People being transferred to other, other posts in the Navy. And finally we prayed about it, we talked about it, we said, hey, I tell you what, let's, let's turn this to a positive. Let's call ourselves a sending church. <laughs> that these people are going out, we, we get them for two or three years, we train them, we send them out, they're their missionaries being paid by the government. So we'll, we'll be a sending church. And we started emphasizing that, and it changed the whole attitude of the church. We said, well, we're grateful for these people going out because they are representing us. They're going out. I had one elder that was an elder in my church. He was uh, transferred to Guantanamo Bay. And um, he had been trained by me over a period of several years. And he, he was the major, and he um, was a pilot. And he was flying, flying out of Guantanamo Bay. And the only church service they had in Guantanamo Bay was from a liberal chaplain. I, I'm sure you've seen a few of those, right? Uh, a liberal chaplain. And so nobody would go to the service. So he started preaching on Sunday. He would fly his missions during the week, and on Sunday he would preach. And he became kind of the de facto chaplain of the base. He... Uh, Everybody went to hear him. Nobody went to hear the, hear, hear the chaplain. Those kind of things can happen. People that you, you have here can go off and do great things for God somewhere else. We hate to see them go, but they are, you are sending them. And we, would have, we had a, a service where we 
commissioned all the people that went out. We commissioned them. Say, we are going out and we commission you to go out and take the gospel to the whole world. Today I'm going to preach to you about <clears throat> the uh, Great Commission. All of you know that, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You, you know it by heart. I know it by heart. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the Great Commission, the last thing Jesus said to the church before he ascended to heaven. It's got to be important because it's the last thing he said. He, what he was doing was reiterating what he already said and giving them again, reminding them again that this is your job. Your job is to make disciples of all the nations. One of my favorite stories is called The Life-Saving Station. There's a, there's a story about <clears throat> this little life-saving station on this rocky coast where lots of ships go down in bad weather and there's all these people drowning. And so they established this little life-saving station, this little hut, and they got one boat and they had some volunteers. They went out. Every time a shipwreck happened, they would go out and pull in uh, people from the sea. And they were very successful. They pulled in a lot of people. And they, as they were more successful, more people wanted to join them. People they had saved wanted to join them. People had heard about them. They, they got written up in Time magazine and, and they became kind of famous. So people started wanting to be part of this life-saving station. And a funny thing happened as they, as, they, um, as they grew, people said, well, we don't like this shack. Let's build a new life-saving station. So they built this beautiful life-saving station with chandeliers and uh, a lifeboat motif, you know, with, on the wall and all these different things. But a strange thing happened. Uh, the, more, the more affluent the life-saving station became and the more beautiful the building became, the fewer people wanted to go out into the sea and and help people. So they started hiring people to do it. <laughs> they, uh, they started hiring uh, people to go out and take the boats out. And um, most of the people were, you know, saw the Life Saving Station as a social club. Well, a pivotal thing happened. One day this huge liner came down, went down into the sea and, they, and, the, and the hired boats went out and pulled in people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They were black, white, they were dirty, they were sick, uh, they were grimy from being in the sea, and they brought them into this, this beautiful life-saving station, and they got salt water on the carpet, and they got seaweed on the, on the, on the furniture, and a furor arose. All the members said, what are you doing bringing people like that into our life-saving station? They're getting it dirty, and so they called for a vote to stop all life-saving activities. And even though many people said, well, you know, we are a life-saving station, you know, we should be saving lives, right? This is what we call ourselves, so we should keep doing it. And, 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 but the people who wanted to stop the life-saving activities won, and they stopped. So the people who wanted to do life-saving work had to go out and start another little life-saving station. It went through the same process, and it got to be affluent, and it, they quit doing theirs, then another one started... Today, if you go to that seacoast, you will see lots of exclusive little clubs along the beach. 
And many ships still go down, in, go down in those waters, but most of the people drown because nobody is going out. They've changed the purpose of the station to something else. Matthew 28 gives us our purpose. I call it the great purpose. It gives us our job. Jesus gives the church its job. And if you look at the verse itself, you say, what is the job? Well, in the Greek, the, uh, the, the, the command is to make disciples. That's our job, to make disciples. And then the other words there are auxiliary to that word telling you how to do it. So if you want to look at it as a picture, you'll say, okay, I want to make disciples. Put that in the middle. Around the edge you have, I've got to go. They had to go out in the ocean to, make, to, to pull the people in. You've got to go. That means missions. That means evangelism, both home and abroad. You've got to go. You've got to give them the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news about what Christ has done, that he died for our sins. He was raised on the third day according to the gospel. That he, that he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the gospel. That he died so that he swapped our sin for his righteousness. The, the great good news of the gospel. We give them, to, give them to anybody that will listen. Of course, we don't save anybody. We know that. We're reformed people. We don't save anybody. God saves them, but he uses us to do it, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to tell them, right? How can they hear unless they're told? And how can they be told without a preacher, the Bible says? So we tell them, and then they, they <clears throat> become Christians. And we rejoice. And then the next step is to bring them into the church. That's what the baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You bring them into the church. Why do you want to bring them into the church? Because you can't make a disciple unless you have them to teach. You bring them into the church. That's called assimilation. You bring them into the church. I used to tell people I've won hundreds of people of the Lord over my lifetime. And, um, and I used to tell them when I went to the Lord, hey, find you a good church and go to it. And they would, get a good they would go to a church, maybe their mother's church or somebody, and nobody would disciple them. They didn't get any training. I quit saying that. I started saying, come to my church. I want to keep an eye on you. Come to my church. You bring them into the church, and then you teach them to observe everything Jesus has commanded. That's discipleship. You teach them to be reformed. You teach them, you teach them how to witness. You teach them how to study the Bible. You teach, them how to, you teach them how to have a good, happy family and home and raise kids and all that. You teach them what Jesus has commanded. That's discipleship. And when you do that, you have a mature disciple who will become a minister. The Bible says every Christian is a minister, the ministry of every believer. And you can, then they can take part. So we got the circle. We go and we bring them into the church, we disciple them, and then they become ministers and go themselves. They go themselves. And we have a multiplication process. We're never going to win the world by addition. But we will win the world by multiplication. Where those people in the church who are trained disciples make disciples themselves. So what's the goal of the Great Commission? More disciples and better disciples, right? God wants more disciples. He wants better disciples. So the great purpose of the church is to be faithful to Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations. Now, this is, this is stated in many other ways in the Bible. It's stated, and I want you to remember as you, as you study this that all the commands about going out and reaching the world 
uh, have promises connected. I have another sermon. If I came again, I'd preach on the great promise, which is a, where he says he promises us that if we'll do our part, if we do what he says to do, he'll, he'll do his part and save them. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of you. You will have power. In the Great Commission, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. We go in Christ's authority. Nobody can tell us we can't go. Nobody can keep us from being successful as we go. We go in his authority. It's not we're, going to, it's not our, we're not doing it ourselves. He's using us to do it himself. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end shall come. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the great commission just restated in other ways, right? Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and salvation. All those who believe to those who are called by his name. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Revelation 5, around the throne of God will become people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Matthew 9, one of my favorites. He saw the multitudes and he saw, he had compassion for them for they were weak and downtrodden like sheep without a shepherd. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth workers into the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. If you think that's all, that's not all. He says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. He said, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. How are you going to fill this house? Go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Another verse, go to your friends and relatives and tell them the great things God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Another verse, let your light shine before men that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the catechism, everybody knows catechism question number one, right? What is man's chief end? Who's got it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And everybody always asks me, what does that mean to glorify God? I said, well, this means to reflect his glory. Of course, we don't have any glory, but we're reflecting his glory by living the way he wants us to live. But I want to give you a verse that clarifies it to me. John 17, 4. Jesus said, I glorified thee on earth. Anybody know the end of it? By accomplishing the work you gave me to do. How do you best glorify God and how do you reflect his glory? By accomplishing the work he's given the church to do. You're going to glorify God when you carry out the Great Commission in this church. The Great Commission is not the great suggestion, my friend. Jesus is not suggesting that you do this. He is the head of the church. And he says, go and make disciples. This is what's called being an evangelical church. I saw on your website where you said we're reformed and we're evangelical. Is there any contradiction between those two things? No. Because we're, te we're, we're telling people and God is saving them. We, we're not saving them. We're a reformed church. I'm a five-point five Calvinist. And I'm as reformed as anybody. But I'm with Spurgeon when he says there is no contradiction between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. They are friends. You don't have to reconcile them because you, can't re you don't have to reconcile friends. So this church should be both reformed and evangelical. 
If you're a reformed but you're not evangelical, what are you? Hyper-reformed. You're not reformed. You're not reformed. So we don't save anyone, but God saves them using us to do it. So here's a, here's a statement I want you to remember. The number one problem in most church, and I found this to be true when I was doing the church consulting thing, the number one problem in most churches is that they've either forgotten or altered the purpose of the church. Do churches really do that? Do they actually alter the purpose? It's so clear in the Bible. I, I, that's the reason I read you all these verses. Isn't it clear that we're to go and make disciples? The church's job is to make disciples. Isn't that clear? But yet, most churches alter or forget that purpose. When I was doing church consulting work, I found 30 ways that churches alter the great purpose. I had one church that was dead as a doornail, had this big, beautiful building that chandeliers everywhere, you could, they, they had a parlor that probably the furniture cost $25,000 and they wouldn't even let anybody go in there. The most powerful committee in the church was the chandelier committee. They had altered the purpose of the church. They had what I call the edifice complex. The building was more important than the job. And everything centered around keeping a beautiful building. Their maintenance churches, their churches, a lot of churches in the United States, all they're trying to do is keep the lights on and pay the pastor. They just, just want to maintain. They don't care anything about reaching out. There are churches that are social clubs, like in the Life Saving Station story. They become show. How did the Life Saving Station alter their purpose? They were there to save lives from the sea, but they became a social club, right? There are 30 different ways. I had one church that was a clan church. It's not Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I call, a clan church is a church that's dominated by one family. You ever seen a church like that? There was one family that dominated the church. And when I went there, we only had like seven people to start. And most of them were these family members. And when we started growing, people started coming. These people got threatened. They got threatened because their power was not as, was being diluted. And I had one lady who came in, ended up, this lady became a Christian, and we had, and she, she led, she brought to me 10 more people who became Christians. She was responsible for 10 more people becoming Christians in that church. The first time she came to the church, she sat in a pew, and this was a big, beautiful church. I mean, I'm talking about lavish church. And one of the elders who was from this family, the clan family, who's not even a Christian, uh, went up to her and said, uh, who are you? And she said, excuse me, am I in your pew? And he said, they're all mine. You get that? He saw the church as his. Because his granddaddy had been an elder and his daddy had been an elder. Well, that guy was not bound to this world because it wasn't long before I ran him off. He didn't need to be there. He either needed to become a Christian or he needed to get out of the way. Because he was, I mean, when he became, when he, when I dealt with him, his name was Thomas, when I dealt with him, and I went to him and said, you cannot act like this anymore. Either you repent 
And I'd write our own, own resignation as an elder tomorrow. And he left the church, and, and the word spread, it was a fairly small community, all over town that this guy had gone. And we, we got at least 20 people because we kicked him out. At least 20 people came. Because they said, I couldn't believe that this guy, that they allowed this guy to be in the church. He was so toxic to everybody. And when we dealt with him, it, it was a positive thing in the community. They said, now we can come. We'll come. So part of carrying out the Great Commission is doing, taking care of problems that may be getting in the way of the Great Commission. So to have a great church, the greatest church we can have, we must affirm and commit ourselves and our resources to carry out the Great Commission or the great purpose of the church. This is something about which all of us should agree. Is it, does anybody disagree with that statement? Does anybody disagree that in order to be a great church, you're going to have to commit yourselves and your resources to carry out the Great Commission? If I'm going to Chicago and you're going to New York, we're never going to agree on the, on the roads to take, right? We're never going to agree. But if everybody's going to Chicago, in other words, we're all going to try to carry out the Great Commission. We, we may disagree about some of the things we need to do, but we all have the same purpose. Mm -hmm. That's what you need. Everybody needs to have the same purpose. So Jesus is the head of the church. He decides what the church does, not us. Not that elder who, who thought he owned the church. He doesn't decide what the church does. That elder, by the way, voted against starting a missions program in that church. That was one of the things he did. So God has designed the church to grow and prosper. The problem is not the design of the church, it's that men take the design of the church and twist it into something else that Jesus never intended. So I like to say, in order to be successful, the church must become the church. We must be the church as the Bible describes the church. And whatever gets in the way of that, I don't care if it's an elder with a lot of money, you got to do something about it. Whatever gets in the way of that, you have to do something about it. So the issue is really not about church growth. It's about church health, isn't it? If the church is healthy, if we're following God's design for the church, then we're going to see success. We're going to see things happen. We're going to see numbers. We're going to see more disciples and better disciples. If you had a child and he stopped growing at two years old and didn't grow anymore, you'd, you'd be concerned, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You'd say, that child's something wrong with that child. He's sick. Well, if you have a church that stops growing and is not, is not doing anything for the God, not making disciples, there's something wrong with that church. It's sick. It's not our job to grow the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it's our job simply to conform to Jesus' desire for the church to its original design. Because not only is Jesus the head of the church, he will judge the church. Revelation 2. There's seven churches, right? He judges those seven churches. One of them, he says, you're lukewarm. You've lost your first love. You have a reputation that you're alive and you're dead, but you're dead. He only gives a commendation to two of the seven churches. Seven of them had altered or forgotten their purpose. If I had a boss and he came to me and he said, 
um, I'm the head of the company, you work for me, I want you to build me a boat. And he gave me specifics about what he wanted. He said, I'm going away, I'm going to come back, and when I get back, I want you to have me a boat, and I'll pay you this much money for it. So as, after he leaves, I sit down and say, he doesn't really need a boat. I think I'll dig him a hole instead. And so I, I dig this beautiful, round, great, impressive hole. And when that boss comes back and he finds a hole and not a boat, is he going to be happy? No. He is not going to be happy. And when Jesus comes back and he finds the church not doing what he said he would do, they would do, he's not going to be happy. What did Jesus threaten the churches in Revelation? I will take your candlestick away. What does that mean? That means... I'll take your churchhood away. It's my contention there's a lot of churches in America, a lot of them, that have steeples, services, buildings, and they're not churches in God's eyes anymore. They have no longer, they've lost their candlestick. They've ceased to be churches. <coughs> we need to be careful and make sure we're not one of them. So as I said, the state of the church is pretty, pretty poor. But what do churches do? They rationalize, they rationalize their own pitiful condition. When I used to do uh, counsel with churches, first question I would ask them is, are you a good church? You know what? I never had anybody say, we're not a good church. Everybody say, oh yeah, we're a good church, we're a good church. But then when we start digging into the specifics, the problems they had, how many people have become Christians in your church in the last two years? How much money do you give to missions? How many Bible studies do you have? How many people have you discipled? How many people have you sent to the mission field? When you start looking at some of the specifics, they're not quite so good as they thought they were. They're not as good as they thought they were. So churches rationalize. They make excuses. I've heard all of them. I, they have what, some have what's called the Jeremiah complex. Oh, woe is me. You know, I'm like Jeremiah. I'm, I'm serving the Lord, but I'm thrown in the pit. And, and you know, I'm, you know it's, it, they, they, they rationalize. I've had them say, <clears throat> I even had a church say one time to me, we're not growing because we're too good. <laughs> what? We're not growing. Oh, we're too good. People don't want to hear that. I had another one say, people aren't interested in the gospel. And I would say to him, people are far more interested in the gospel than you are in telling them the gospel. 65% of people are not Christians in faith. And over 80% do not go to church. That's a mission field you got right out there. It's a mission field. So we can't rationalize it. We, if we are not doing what God wants us to do and we can see it, we need to own up to it. We need to own up to it. There's an old saying, in many churches, the standards are so low, one would have to backslide to be in fellowship. When I was uh, in Pensacola, we lived close to the water, the ocean, and one weekend we made the mistake of watching all the Jaws films and then going to the beach. We watched all these Jaws films, and when we got to the beach, nobody would get in the water. They were all afraid of Jaws, you know, going to eat them. And then one of my little daughter, one of my little daughters said, hey, I have an idea. I have an idea. Uh, we'll get in, and if we hear boom, 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 we'll get out. 
Because that, you know, she heard all the You never saw a shark unless you had that music. Well, some churches need to hear that. Boom, 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 boom. The shark is at the door, my friend. The shark is at the door, and we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do. So Jesus' instructions are clear. The Great Commission. Say it with me one time. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. See the fields widen to harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. And let us be part of that workforce. He's saying, have on your heart what I have on my heart. And that's a lost and dying world. Be willing to stand in the gap between a lost and dying world and eternity. This is the reason that the church exists. This is the reason that we're not taken to heaven when we're saved. Everything we do on earth, we could do with greater purity and better in heaven. But Jesus left us here. Why did he leave us here? So that we could be ambassadors for Christ, beseeching people, be reconciled to God. So that we could be his instruments that he could use to carry out his wishes for this world. So we have a glorious purpose. We have a glorious purpose. And I'm going to say a couple things that might get me in trouble. I'll probably get invited back, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say a couple things. It doesn't take many to make this happen. There's power in a few. If 10% of this church committing themselves to the Great Commission and followed through in the church, it would change this church completely. Part of the people who have, to, who have to make that commitment, though, are the elders of the church. The elders must see themselves as responsible to Jesus Christ, the head of the church, to carry out the Great Commission. Most elders that I've talked to have never even thought about that. They know they're supposed to visit and shepherd and this and that. But they never say, you mean I'm responsible to make sure this church carries out the Great Commission? I say, yes, you are responsible. Because you're the, head, you're, you're the leaders of the church. You're responsible. That means every one of those areas that I talked to you about, you should have a plan to carry them out. You should have a plan for missions. You should have a plan for evangelism. You have, should have a plan to assimilate new people in the church. You should have a plan of discipleship. You have, should have a plan where you're going to promote and help people with minister, become minister, uh, ministers in the church, their own ministry in the church. You should have a plan, and that's the elder's job, to come up with that plan. If you need help, give me a call. I'll be glad to help you. And the members of the church are responsible to take part, to be part, to not expect us to hire lifesavers, I mean, people to go out and save lives in the ocean, but say, I'll get in the boat. I'll, I'll row out there to help people. The members are responsible 
to take part, to be involved. So let's become world Christians. Let's say I, we care about what's happening in the world. Let's become, let's take a global mentality. We want to see the rock of our church thrown in the ocean of the world cause ripples on every shore. We want our church to have an impact around the world. Let's practice strategic living. Like Esther, who knows if I'm here for such a time as this. How can you live strategically? What about that neighbor that maybe is not a Christian? What about, what about that person at work? Can you have a evangelistic study in your home and invite your neighbors and see people become a Christian? In one church, I had, for over a 10-year period, I did 45 evangelistic Bible studies in people's homes and neighborhoods. We did them like this. <clears throat> they make a list of 30 people they would invite People to come, they tell them what we're going to do. We're going to meet for four weeks. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the Bible. And that's it. And they, they call all, everybody on that list until they got ten people. I, t I would take four people from the church to go with whatever they had, and we would have a small group in their home. The people in the church to give their testimony each week, and then we'd go over the first four chapters of the gospel of John in four weeks. In those 45 studies over a period of 10 years, I never had a single study when at least one person did not become a Christian. At least one person in every one of those 45 studies. So we have to practice strategic living, personal involvement in the Great Commission. How can I get personally involved? So the main thing it's to see to it that the main thing is the main thing. We cannot, we cannot change or alter or forget the Great Commission. The answer is with you and me. If we want to see it happen, it will happen. If we do our part, we will see God do his part. I like the verse where it says, he says to Paul, Paul, I'm glad you're here, for I have many people in this place. I'm glad, I'm glad you came to this city because as you do, as you give the gospel, I'm going to win a lot of them. I have many people in this place. And I always think, wherever I am, God has many people in this place. He has many people in this place. So let's get a unity of purpose. Even though we might not agree about every single thing, we can agree about this that this is our job. This is what we want to carry out in the church. Will you commit yourself today to the great purpose of the church? That's the question I want to leave with you. Will you commit yourself today? I don't know what form it will take. I don't know how God will use you or where he'll call you. But will you commit yourself today that your church will put as its highest priority the carrying out of the Great Commission in this place. If you do, if you will, and you may already have, I think you probably have. If you do, you're going to see great things happen. Great things happen in this church and in this community. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come today. We thank you for this time we've had together. <clears throat> and Lord, we pray that we would be, that you, you tell us that you put your treasure in earthen vessels. And we certainly are earthen vessels. We are weak and frail 
easily turned aside. But give us strength, Lord. Give us, give us your spirit that we might be bold and be committed to your purpose for the church.